So, the reading from this morning is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 10 to 11, and then 14 to 18. Thus says the Lord, In this place of which you say, It is a waste without humans or animals, in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without inhabitants, human or animals. There shall once more be heard the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thanks offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. The righteous branch and the covenant with David. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to make grain offerings, and to make sacrifices for all times. So we just had our Bible reading from the book of Jeremiah. And I don't know if you've ever heard the expression people use sometimes where they would say, oh gosh, that person is a right Jeremiah. Uh, I'm not sure how common that is these days, but it's a phrase. Now, I'm one of those people who's generally got a pretty kind of sunny and optimistic disposition. And I don't think that's something that's ever really said about me, although I've occasionally thought it about others. The phrase calling someone a Jeremiah is saying that they are, to put it kindly, a glass half empty kind of person. A bit like Eeyore, you might say, or Marvin the paranoid android, or possibly Creature the house elf. One of the things about someone who's a Jeremiah is that they can often annoy those around them, often because they're right. I mean, you only have to look at the way Greta Thunberg has continued to be vilified in certain strands of the media to see how little people like to be told that the climate crisis is real and imminent. And certainly the Jewish prophet of doom from the 7th century BCE, the original Jeremiah himself, made something of a career of annoying people by his dire predictions. Like Private James Fraser from Dad's Army, Jeremiah spent years telling his fellow citizens of Jerusalem that we're all doomed. 
He kept telling them that their good life under King Zedekiah wasn't going to last because, he said, the Babylonians are coming. The good life's not going to last. The Babylonians are coming. And at one level, Jeremiah's predictions of Jerusalem's downfall to the Babylonian army could have been, you know, just a matter of him reading the political landscape correctly, seeing something in the wind that was going to turn into the whirlwind of destruction. And if that had been all there was to it, he might not have made himself quite so unpopular. I mean, saying something like, hey, everybody, look, there's a large and powerful army getting closer. I think we should be prepared for the worst. That, that's not highly controversial. But what Jeremiah did that annoyed everyone so much was that he pointed to the large Babylonian army gathering on the distant horizon. And then he told King Zedekiah of Jerusalem that it was his fault, his fault, that the disaster was coming. Jeremiah, you see, wasn't just a prophet of doom. And he wasn't just right in his predictions, he was also annoying because he firmly pointed the finger at the king as the one responsible. By Jeremiah's understanding, King Zedekiah had led his country in such a way that had taken it away from where God wanted it to be. He had prioritised war over peace, nationalism over cooperation, and Jeremiah was telling him that those policies were leading him to an imminent reaping of the consequences of his actions. So by the time we get to the passage that Evelyn read for us this morning, Jeremiah is now languishing in his palace dungeon in Jerusalem. Zedekiah has dumped him there in an attempt to shut him up. Prophets of doom who are right and pointing the finger at those responsible often find themselves in the equivalent of the cancelled dungeon in Jerusalem. It's so often the case, isn't it, that those who hold political power will go to extraordinary lengths to silence those who critique their power. And yet, the prophetic voice refuses to be silenced. Eventually, truth will out. Oppression, bigotry and powerful vested interests didn't get to silence the uncomfortable voices of the prophets forever. One of my favourite Paul Simon songs, and I have many, is a song called The Sound of Silence. I don't know whether Paul Simon had Jeremiah in mind when he wrote this song, but he certainly could have done. I'm just going to read the words of the last verse now. And my invitation to us is for us to hear this as the cry of the silenced prophet echoing down the millennia from Jeremiah to us. These are the words if you don't know it. Fools, said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words it was forming. And the sign said, the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls. And whispered in the sound of silence. 
well, my apologies if that's planted an earworm that you're going to get stuck with all day. Jeremiah, and those like him in any age, will not, in the end, be silenced. Despite the fact that they are rejected for proclaiming a message that is not only pessimistic, but which requires a change to society's destructive patterns of behaviour if the disaster is to be averted. The prophets speaking to COP28 at the moment are right and the vested interests will seek to silence them. And yet, ultimately, their words will be heard. The thing is, the masses hate a Jeremiah, and we all love an optimist. It's so much easier, isn't it, to vote for the confident, sunny disposition of the person promising easy answers to complex questions than ever it is to admit that reducing geopolitical and economic complexities to binary options is dangerously simplistic. And those who offer optimism in place of realism, denying the words of the prophets and silencing the voices of concern, too often resort to the easy option of placing Jeremiah back in his dungeon and hoping desperately that it'll all work out okay. But Jeremiah and those like him will not be silenced. And denying the problems they proclaim doesn't make those problems go away. And so Jeremiah continues to speak from his dungeon beneath the palace. But what's so interesting is that what he, what he issues, what he says from his confinement, contains a surprising message of hope. Sometimes I find myself almost in despair at the world. I worry about global warming, I worry about the rise of the far right in Europe and elsewhere, I worry about the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, I worry about terrorism, I worry about mass migration, I worry about oppression and injustice, all of those things. Sometimes even sunny optimists like sunny optimistic Simon can find themselves becoming a bit of a Jeremiah. How about you? So what does Jeremiah say next? Does he continue his message of, we're all doomed and there's nothing you can do about it? Well, yes and no. There's no escape for Jerusalem of the 7th century BC from the Babylonian army on the horizon. The city will be besieged, overthrown, and the people will be taken into exile. But nonetheless, Jeremiah explores a sense of what hope might look like in the face of the depressing message of imminent destruction. Our Advent candle for today that we lit at the beginning of the service is the candle that burns of hope. Jeremiah's message is both deeply troubled but also at the same time deeply hopeful. At the time of his imprisonment, when we meet him in chapter 33 of the book that bears his name, there are no obvious signs of hope. The Babylonians are coming, despair and destruction is going to come to his beloved city and he's imprisoned. But still he dares to speak of hope, which comes not from a denial of the realities before him, but from a deep grappling with despair. And I find myself thinking here about a depth of spirituality that can embrace both hope and despair. 
Too often my experience of church life over the years has been one where we're expected to be converted from despair to hope. As if despair were some kind of sinful or shameful state from which we need salvation. I'm not sure that's true. And I think Jeremiah offers us a more integrated model here. As he holds hope and despair together before God. The hope he proclaims from the depths of despair is something that challenges the realities of the present. Something which alters the way in which one lives in the here and now by articulating a new and transformative way of being. So, Jeremiah says, one day, one day, one day is surely coming. God will cause a righteous branch, he says, to spring up for David. It's a bit of a riddle that. What does it mean to say God will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David? Understanding what he means by this requires us to know a little bit more about the Jewish story. For the Jews of Jeremiah's time, their security was deeply tied up with their monarchy as a gift from God. And so the stories of David, King David, the archetypical king of ancient times who had, uh, had uh, reigned in Israel several hundred years before the time of Jeremiah. These stories of their kind of ancient mythologized great king defined their nation, their understanding of who they were and who they were called by God to be. For the Jews at the time of the Babylonian invasion in the seventh century, the stories of King David functioned a little bit in the way that the stories of King Arthur have functioned in English culture. I'm sure you know the stories of King Arthur, don't you? The legend of Arthur and Merlin and Uther Pendragon and, and all of that lot forged. These, those were the stories that forged the mythology that sustained the English empire. And so it was that the tales of Saul, David and Solomon those ancient kings of old undergirded the ideology of Israel as God's chosen people. And in the face of the Babylonian invasion, that ideology was being shaken to its core. If Zedekiah, the king in Jeremiah's time, were to end up being killed, if Israel was to lose its king, then maybe all of God's promises need to be questioned. This wasn't just, you see, a political crisis that Jeremiah was living through. It was a crisis of faith, a crisis of nationalism, a crisis of theology. And so, he says, just as a new branch can sometimes spring up from the stump of a felled tree, maybe, maybe even if Israel is toppled by the Babylonians, Maybe God has not forgotten the promises made in olden days, and maybe a new branch will spring up for David. Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet to use this image of a branch of David arising from the roots of a felled tree. We find it in Isaiah as well, who uses the name of Jesse, King David's father. And he says in Isaiah chapter 11, a shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. One day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of them and his dwelling shall be glorious. And this passage from Isaiah together with our reading from Jeremiah 
stayed with the people of Israel through the time of their exile in Babylon. This image that Israel felt would one day give rise to a new branch sustained the exiles through their years of despair. And then something interesting happened because even though the exile came in its time to an end and the exiles were restored to Jerusalem and their monarchy was re-established and their temple was rebuilt, they didn't really lose this hope that a better, an even better time, a better leader might be coming. And what we're seeing here in our reading from Jeremiah and its parallel in Isaiah is the beginning of what became the Jewish hope for a coming Messiah. You see, even though the end of the exile marked a partial restoration, the extent of Israel's borders never got back to where the stories of old had said they used to be in the time of King David. I mean, it's far from clear whether there's historical reality in those borders ever being uh, where the stories claim they were, but that's what the stories tell of. The kings, the post-exilic kings of Israel, never recovered the political strength and autonomy that the stories of David told about him. And instead, the restored post-exilic Israel between the time of the end of the exile and the time of Jesus just existed kind of as a puppet nation ruled by puppet kings, controlled and at the mercy of whatever empire was dominant at that time, from the Babylonians to the Greeks to the Romans, they were a ruled over people. And so the seed for a, a righteous branch for David, planted by Jeremiah and nurtured through the despair of the exile, grew in time into the hope for a coming Messiah a son of David who would restore Israel's faith and dignity before God. But I'm jumping too far ahead. Let's stay with Jeremiah for a moment longer. Let's rejoin him in his dungeon, in the palace in Jerusalem, with the Babylonian army on the horizon. Because Jeremiah tells us from the literal pits of his despair what this hope he speaks of will look like. For Jeremiah... Hope looks like justice and righteousness. These are things that are nowhere in his world, but he dares to speak of a hope for justice. This is a mind-altering moment in the story of Israel. It sets the agenda for everything that follows. What, Jeremiah asks, would it mean for God's justice and righteousness to be embodied and enacted in the world? What would it mean for someone to live out God's eternal intent of setting things right? What would it mean for the kingdom of Israel to become the kingdom of the Lord, who is righteousness and justice? This is an astonishing articulation of hope in the face of overwhelming despair. In Jeremiah's world, righteousness and justice are gone. And for him to assert that God is righteous and that God is just and that God has not yet finished with his people. This is a narrative of hope that has the capacity to change the world. But here's the thing. Jeremiah says all of this even when the earthly reality of it is nowhere to be seen. 
And so we leap forward now to the coming of Jesus. We are, after all, now in Advent. And it's not immediately clear, even in the story of the coming of the birth of Jesus, it's not immediately clear that God is putting things right by sending a child who will be born in difficult circumstances, who will have to flee his home for a while as a refugee. It's not immediately clear that God is putting things right if we leap to the end of the Jesus story and we hear the horrors of the crucifixion and the rumours of a resurrection. It's not immediately clear that that's what God is doing. And yet Jeremiah says that he is so certain of his hope that Jerusalem itself can be renamed a city called the Lord is our righteousness. You see, the hope that Jeremiah proclaims is not dependent on any human activity. It is dependent on God's actions. He is saying that it is always God who gives new life in place of death. That it is only God who brings new righteousness and justice into the very heart of the place where despair is most deeply felt. And if Jerusalem, the city of death and destruction in Jeremiah's time, can become the place where hope enters the world, then hope can come to anywhere that despair is at its worst. Whether it is the lonely solitude of the human heart, or the corporate victims of an act of terror, or the communal hell of besieged Gaza, Hope. Hope is not extinguished in the world. And so, because it's Advent, we do come at last to Jesus, who asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And his friend Peter answered him and said, you are the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who will restore justice and righteousness and bring hope. Within the Christian story, the hope of Jeremiah and Isaiah is seen as fulfilled in Jesus, who embodies God's righteousness and justice and brings hope to all those whose lives are lost in despair. And so for those of us who find ourselves living in turbulent times, not knowing who to believe or where to go for truth, the living hope that is Jesus, made known to us by his Spirit, and encountered in one another as we gather in his name, this living hope gives us a hope that can and will sustain us through the darkest of times. And so we pray again the great Advent prayer of longing for a world transformed. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's bring our prayers of intercession to God. On this first Sunday of Advent, we echo the cry of the people of Jeremiah's time, that the towns and streets are desolate. For us, it's not because there are no animals or people there, but rather, that so often we humans are lacking in concern for others, in desire for justice, and in thinking and planning for the future well-being of the earth. Yet we too 
can be encouraged by God's word to us, that the voices of mirth and gladness will sing again. And so we pray that such prophetic voices may indeed be heard in our land and that we may recognize them. We know from the stories of old of prophets like Jeremiah, Amos and Elijah that these voices are almost always unpopular. Their messages unwelcome, difficult to contend with and demanding too much from their listeners. Yet we pray that these messages continue to prevail despite all attempts to silence them and are heard at least by a minority. Gracious God, help us to hear and recognize these voices and messages. Give us the understanding to know what they mean and the strength to put them into practice. Open our eyes to see the vision of what you want for us and our world, that we may work to overturn destructive patterns of behavior, denials of reality, and the despair that results. We pray again for Israel and Palestine, that their leaders will seek ways to bring about not only peace, but also reconciliation between themselves. We pray for the ordinary people who, as always in conflict situations, are those who bear the brunt of the suffering. And we pray too for those in the occupied West Bank whose lives have been put on hold, unable to work to earn the money to feed their families or keep their homes warm. We pray for other parts of the world where there's been long-term fighting, such as Ukraine, Sudan, and Myanmar. May these situations be resolved so that those people may live in peace. We think now of those world leaders attending the COP28 conference. So often it seems these people gather only to talk about protecting the earth from global warming and climate change. Wonderful promises are made, yet little changes. We ask that they, and we, may do what we can to limit the destruction of the planet. And we pray for our country's leaders, that they will not allow desire for power or notions of corruption to influence their decision-making. We ask that our judicial systems will make fair judgments, particularly those giving assessments for people seeking asylum. And we pray too that our government, both at national and local level, may use their resources wisely to support those in need. When we hear that Bethlehem is not able to celebrate Christmas publicly this year because of the military lockdown, we are again tempted to despair. But we recall 
that Jeremiah's hope lay in his vision of justice and righteousness, epitomized for us in the coming of Jesus. So at this time, as this time of Advent begins, help us to remember God's promise of a branch that will spring up, that a son of David will come who will execute justice and righteousness. We ask for such hope as we turn our hearts and minds once more to the birth of Jesus, your son, our savior. We pray all this in his name, amen. And we remain standing for our final blessing. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord smile upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord show his favor to us and give us peace. Amen.